Our scripture reading comes from John 20, 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in the place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Women, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go and tell my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray together. Father, we thank, we're thankful that this story really is the reason that we're here each Sunday. You know, we celebrate Easter one time of year, but every Sunday is a celebration of this resurrection. Because, Father, if this didn't happen, then there would be no reason to gather here each, each Sunday as we do. But because it did, we know that we can have hope and we can have life and we know that you are worthy of our worship. So, Father, help our hearts to see you here this morning. Help our minds, help our eyes to see you here this morning and to see that hope that came from your resurrection. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you've been with us for the past couple weeks, really all throughout the Lenten season uh, at City Church, we've been looking at uh, the miracles of Jesus. We haven't looked so much at his teaching or how he interacted with others. Really, we just looked uh, at his miracles, the miraculous deeds that he did. But then when we come to this story, we're reminded that this really is the most miraculous thing of all. Of all the things that we read in Scripture, of all the stories that we read in the Gospel, The rising of Jesus Christ from the dead is the most miraculous of all of them. All the gospel writers, when they write the gospels, told these miracle stories. But they didn't share these stories just because they were interesting stories or they thought they'd get lots of readers because they included these interesting stories. But they are concerned about something that's much bigger, something even bigger than the miracles. And that's why they wrote them down. 
because each gospel writer is more concerned than anything else about the idea of faith. They want their readers to know what it means to believe in Jesus Christ and what it means to have faith in him. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question. What is this thing that we call faith? What is faith? We use the word a lot, so much so that it often becomes kind of a filler word. We say to one another, well, have faith or keep the faith. And, and we use the word a lot in our interactions with one another. But do we really understand what this thing called faith really means? Do we really know what the gospel writers are talking about when they say that we are to have faith in Jesus Christ? So this morning, what I'd like to do is to just look at faith from two different angles. Really, they're different sides of the same coin, because what we see in both the response of John in our story and in the response of Mary is something powerful about the nature of faith. The first thing I'd like to look at is, is what I call the, the objective side of the faith or the part of the faith that really happens outside of ourselves, that happens outside of us. You know, we've looked at, at all these miracle stories all throughout the Lenten season, but we've really tried to focus particularly on the gospel writer John's perspective on Jesus. And the Gospels were all really accounts of Jesus, but really, if you look carefully, they are very personal stories about the Gospel writers as well. They tell stories not just about what Jesus did, but about what their very own hearts were thinking as they witnessed or saw these stories of Jesus. John's Gospel tells us that after Jesus' crucifixion and his death, uh, one of his followers, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body to be taken down from the cross so that he could bury it. Permission was granted, so Joseph took Jesus' body and he placed it in a garden tomb. And the Easter story tells us that on that third day, Mary went, the very first day of the week, Mary went to the garden early in the morning when it was still dark outside. And she recognized as soon as, that she, that she, as, soon as she arrived that, that the stone in front of the tomb had been removed. Now, she didn't really check it out. She didn't really look inside. Immediately, when she saw that the stone was removed, she ran back to the other disciples. She ran particularly to Peter and John and tells them what she had seen. So Peter and John rush out to the tomb to prove what Mary was saying. And not only do they find the stone rolled away just as Mary had said, but they find Jesus' burial clothes lying in the tomb folded up. Now what's interesting about John's gospel is John rarely uses his own name in the narrative. He refers to himself as the other disciple or as the disciple whom Jesus had loved, but, ver but chapter 20, verse 8, is a very personal verse for John. Maybe the most personal verse of all the verses in his entire gospel, because he says in verse 8, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw, and he believed. See, John was saying something very personal here. He was saying that he'd witnessed all these things about Jesus in his three-year ministry 
But it was in that moment, that specific moment, that in his heart, he believed. You know, within the past couple years, uh, a certain pastor and other pastors like him have become very popular for coming out publicly and confessing that they no longer believe in God. These are pastors or ministers who are uh, engaged in the ministry to other people that have chosen for whatever reason in their own heart that they don't believe in the actual existence of God anymore. And they don't see a contradiction between being a minister and engaged in ministry and the belief in God. I've heard stories about pastors, even in our area, who have become ordained even though they don't believe in the actual existence of Jesus Christ. They believe that he was an idea or maybe a myth, that he presented teachings that we can all really rally around. He was an, he's an idea or an experience, but was he an actual person? Maybe not. It's part of a long stream of thought that exists in our culture that says it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you sincerely believe it. Doesn't matter whether it's true, doesn't matter whether it actually happened in history, as long as it just works for you personally. But what the gospel teaches is something that is very different. It teaches that this story of redemption isn't just an idea It isn't just an object lesson on self-sacrifice or forgiveness. The gospel story tells us that it is actual and it is true. The gospel teaches that, that these things actually happened in time and in space. That at some point God did create the world out of nothing. That shortly thereafter humanity rebelled creating a chasm between God and humanity that could not be bridged. And that is why Jesus came, to bridge that chasm with his life and with his death. The gospel teaches that one day he will return and make all things new. You see, many believe that to just have faith is enough. As long as I have faith, that's all that matters. But what we actually have faith in really does matter. The object of our faith really does matter. You know, everybody has faith, despite the fact that they may deny it. Everybody has faith. It just becomes a question of what their faith is in. For most people, their faith, at least functionally, is in themselves. They place their faith in their own reasoning, in their own morality, in their own ability to, to manage life. But in the end, that is never enough. Because the object of our faith matters. And the only object of faith that really saves is Jesus Christ himself. And that is why the the resurrection becomes ultimately the greatest hinge point of faith. Because it tells us that Jesus wasn't just a teacher. He didn't just come as some sort of moral example or some object of self-sacrifice. But instead it teaches us that he was God who took on skin He died a gruesome death on the cross on our behalf, but even sin and death could not overcome him, and he was raised on the third day. Yaroslav Pelikan, who was a a Christian historian, said this. He says, if Jesus Christ is risen, 
then nothing else matters. And then he said, if Jesus Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. It all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, when John peered into that tomb that first Easter Sunday morning, he saw that it was empty. And in that instant, he believed. And for him, in that instant, nothing else mattered. Because he realized that God had come in time and space to save humanity. He came to bring victory over sin and death by rising from the dead. And that he was really the only true object of faith that really and truly saves us. But that's just one side of the coin. It's just one aspect of this faith that really saves. There's another side to faith. And that is the the subjective side of faith or the side of faith that, that happens inside of us, that happens inside of our lives. See, after Peter and John saw the empty tomb, the scriptures tell us that they went home. I've always found that to be really curious. After they saw the empty tomb, they just went home, but not Mary. The passage tells us that Mary actually stayed And she stood in front of the tomb, weeping profusely over what she had just witnessed. And as she stood there weeping, full of emotions at all the things that had happened, it says that she was confronted by two angels. And then after being confronted by two angels, she saw Jesus himself. And everyone questioned her, Mary, why are you weeping? And then it says in verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni or Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. See, all Mary wanted to do when she saw Jesus resurrected All she wanted to do is cling to him, to wrap her arms around his body and to cling to him in faith. You know, it isn't just it isn't enough for us just to recognize the objective elements of the faith. After all, the the best theologians that you'll find in the New Testament were actually the demons that Jesus interacted with. And that's because faith is not just recognizing that something happened in time and space and history. It isn't just knowing all the right theological answers, but it is about experiencing something very powerfully personal at the most intimate places of our lives. The Puritans wrote a lot about faith. And they talked about faith in really three different aspects that help us to understand what this thing called faith is really all about. They said faith involves knowledge, that there are certain things that we need to know in our heads. There are certain cognitive elements about the faith that we need to know. But they said after we know those things, what is required is assent. And that is to not just know that those things are true, but to know that they are true for us. They are true and they apply to our very own hearts. But the third level they talked about is a thing called affiance. It's a word that means to be betrothed or engaged in. 
And affiance is grasping the knowledge that we've given assent to and making it our very own, trusting in it for our very own lives. You know, I first met my wife in, in 1998. It seems like a really long time ago at this point, but I first met my wife in 1998. And I can remember I was sitting on the front steps of, of the dorm in which I was living at, and uh, I was a sophomore at that time. And the favorite thing for sophomores to do was to sit on the front steps of the dorm steps and watch all the freshman girls drive up for the very first time. We got to see what, you know, what we were going to spend the rest of our year chasing after. And I can remember specifically seeing my wife that day and wondering, I'd like to get to know that young girl. And of course, for a year, that's what I did. I grew in my knowledge of her. I grew in my friendship with her. I got to know her as a person. And over that year, feelings started to stir inside of me. Feelings began to arise inside of me. And at some point, I had to give assent to those feelings. I had to recognize inside of me that, that those feelings were true and they were real and that there was a real movement of my heart for her. But affiance came in several stages after that. It came first when I had to, to ask her out on that first date and, and to ask her nervously to be my girlfriend. After that, it came in the nervous asking of her to, to be my wife. And then finally, it came as I stood on the altar and said that I would love her for the rest of my life. You see, in some ways, it's the same in terms of how it works with our faith in God. When it comes to faith that saves, we need to know certain things about God. We need to know that Jesus came, that he performed miracles, that he died, that he rose again. A common misconception is that we have to know everything about God before we can have faith that saves. But there's far too much mystery here. It would be like me saying at the altar that I knew everything about my wife. Therefore, that's why I was marrying her. And that, of course, is not true. The longer we've been married, I've discovered that she's more and more a mysterious character. And she thinks the same about me as well. We don't have to know everything about God in order to have faith that saves. But we do need to know that he came, that he died, that he was resurrected. And at some point in this faith process, we have to say, yes, all these things are true about Jesus. What the Bible says to us about him is true. But finally comes affiance. Finally comes taking what we know and to believe to be true and making it our own and trusting in him with our lives. And when you and I do this, we experience our own personal resurrection. Because the scriptures tell us we are dead in our sins. And when we come to faith in Jesus, we are made alive. His spirit breathes life into our souls. In our passage, we see this happen in Mary and we see it happen in John. We look at them and honestly, we think sometimes, how could I ever have faith like these people that I read about in the Bible? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm encouraged by the faith of another. And that is the faith of Thomas that you read later on in John chapter 20. You see, we know him as Doubting Thomas, and I always feel bad for Thomas. 
because he unfairly gets characterized as the one who doubted Jesus for the rest of human history. He was the one who had the lack of faith in in the narrative. But what's so interesting about Thomas is that when he finally does interact with the resurrected Jesus, Jesus doesn't chide him for his lack of faith. Jesus doesn't judge him because his faith was imperfect. Instead, he is accepted and he is embraced by Jesus. And what it tells us is the faith that saves doesn't require perfect faith on our behalf. But what it does tell us is that Jesus embraces the mess. He embraces people that have imperfect belief and imperfect faith because ultimately the faith that we have is a gift from him. It is a gift from God. So as you sit here, do you struggle with this thing called faith? Emily Dickinson famously said, we both believe and disbelieve a hundred times in an hour. And I know that's true of my very own life. Do we worry that our faith isn't enough? Do we struggle with doubts and questions that seem to consistently go unanswered? Well, the good news of Easter is that there is good news to those who struggle with faith. And that is that God gives faith away as a gift. And he offers us to it. He offers it to us. And he calls us to receive this gift of faith in him, to believe in him and in his resurrection, just as John did, to earnestly desire to to jump into his arms, just as Mary did. One theologian said, faith isn't something you can just drum up like that by your own efforts. It's what comes when you are looking hard at the object of your faith, namely Jesus. My prayer for you and me and all of us here this morning on this Easter morning is that we would look hard at the resurrected Jesus and find ourselves captured by faith. I'll close with this illustration from Charles Spurgeon, who was a a famous pastor, and he talked a lot about faith as well. And he gave this illustration. He said, suppose a fire is in the upper room of a house And people are gathered in the street watching this fire consume a house. Yet shockingly, it is discovered that there is a child in the upper room. And everybody wonders how that child is going to escape. He can leap down, but he will be killed. So a strong man comes beneath and cries, drop into my arms. Now, it is part of faith to know that the man is there. It's another part of the faith to believe that the man is strong. But the essence of faith lies in dropping down into the man's arms. You see, that's what Mary did that first Easter morning. She flung herself into the arms of Jesus Ultimately, that's what John did. Ultimately, that's what Thomas did even too. And this is ultimately what saving faith does. It drops into the nail-scarred hands of the resurrected Jesus Christ.